Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 19. We will be finishing Acts 19 today. Uh, and then next week when Mark is here, he is going to give a regional update and something and a different message. He's not staying in Acts. And then when Dean preaches, he's picking us up in chapter 20. So uh, it's going to be really good. We'll have a little bit of a break from Acts for one week, and then we'll be right back in it. And we're posed right now to finish sometime in October. <laughs> so uh, we've been in Acts for quite a while. While now, but what a wonderful book the book of Acts is, amen? It has so many great principles that we can apply, and it's a little bit, uh, uh, it kind of gets us out of our complacency and, and pricks us a little bit. But as you're turning to Acts chapter 19, I just want to share a quick little story from a guy named Dr. Dar Donald Gray Barnhouse. Probably not many of you know him, but he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, 10th Avenue Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was considered one of the most powerful and profound preachers that America has ever known, and his strength lied both in his theological brilliance, but also his mastery of illustration. And one of Barnhouse's stories that helped many Christians, including me, to understand the workings of the life of Christ in our lives and in our human soul is a story he told about his time shortly after the armistice of World War I. Dr. Barnhouse had the privilege to go over and visit the battlefields of Belgium after the war was over. And for miles west of the city that he was in, he, there was artillery, tanks, trucks, and all this other military material of war that the Germans had abandoned in their hasty retreat uh, during uh, uh, the end of World War I. And he was there on a lovely spring day. And as he was walking along and looking at all the military uh, stuff that was left behind, he noticed that some leaves were beginning to fall from the trees. And he, he was like, well, that's interesting. It's not fall. They seem to be falling for no reason. It's spring. And then one fell and landed on his uh, uniform, got stuck in his button, and he pulled it out. And as he rubbed his fingers on it, it began to disintegrate. And what he realized is that the most powerful force on earth is beginning to happen. It's spring. And the sap is beginning to run through those trees and it's beginning to expel the old dead leaves that held on during uh, autumn's winds and, and, and winter's frost. They held on, but now they're being pushed out by new life. The roots are deep into the earth and they're bringing life into these trees and the dead leaves are beginning to fall away. And it's the most potent force on the earth. One preacher, a Scottish preacher said, this is the expulsive power of the new affection. When we get saved, we are given a new affection in Christ Jesus. And I know of no clearer or more, pro more profound, beautiful illustration of how the new life of Christ in all of us begins to expel the old dead leaves that hang on to our souls. So as the seasons of life roll past and we try to shake off these old dead leaves, some will always hold fast. We still have old habits that we fall back into, but, this is but we need the life of Christ to expel those old leaves because we can't do it 
on our own strength. And this is precisely what happened in Ephesus last week through the persistent labors of Paul. The church began to repent of her sins and they began to remember uh, 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 their identity in Christ and people were getting saved. They began to share their uh, sins and secret sins that they were divulging in and they confessed them and they burned all their idols. They got rid of their dead leaves. And that was found in verse 18 of chapter 19. Their lives looks, took on so much authenticity that many other townspeople came to Christ and they fueled a great bonfire for their, for their idols. And the, and the continuation of the story as we see today reveals what happens when the leaves in our lives fall away. We should expect what we should expect when the Holy Spirit fills us, when we truly repent of sins, when we truly find our satisfaction in Jesus and not in religious rituals or other things like that, but in Christ himself. What happens when we start living the way that Jesus called us to? What happens when we become obedient to the word of God? What happens when we forsake the pleasures that we find in sin and we find our pleasures holy in Christ? There are a few things that happen and there's a few things that we can expect to happen and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And the first thing that we see in our passage today that we can expect and that we can trust is that we can trust that the Spirit will lead us. We can trust that the Spirit of God will lead us. What we'll see in our verses today is how a pagan culture responds to a threat and specifically the threat they're responding to is the effects of the gospel on people's lives, how they're being transformed. So with that in mind, let's begin reading in verse 21 of chapter 19. Now, after these events, Paul uh, resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So what we see happening here is actually where you can identify the tone shift in Paul's life. Uh, he, this is now the, uh, the evidence that he is going to start looking towards Rome. He's going to start heading towards Rome. And for the rest of, uh, uh, of the book of Acts, we're going to see this trajectory clear. He has had many very fruitful years in Ephesus, and he's sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit to move on to other gospel opportunities. The church is birth, the church is growing, they're seeing lost say they're seeing people discipled so now he's feeling like okay i can move on so now we're going to see him from this point on aiming towards the city of rome but before heading to rome paul is going to take up an offering that's why he's going to go to all these other churches paul likes to revisit churches he doesn't believe in i'm just going to get you saved and leave you high and dry he's going to go back he's going to bring encouragement to these churches and he's also going to collect up an offering to bring to jerusalem on his way to rome and what we see is as he continues in acts is he's determined to get to rome but he understands also that there's a lot of stops on the way he's not just going to fly out to Rome. He's going to encourage the saints. There's still a journey. There's still much teaching that has to be done. There's still much gospel opportunity to be found, but he is committed to this destination. This is what's going to drive him. But even after two years in Ephesus, he understands just to leave right now would be a little bit immature. He must stay a little bit longer. So he sends some of his companions on to start collecting the offering, to start bringing up encouragement, and he's going to stay behind. And the text doesn't tell us, but probably my understanding would be that it's because of Acts 19.20. Look what's happening. 
The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus. There has been an awakening in the people. There has been revival happening in Ephesus. Culture was starting to be impacted. People were growing in their knowledge and love of Christ. And Paul didn't want to leave that. He wanted to make sure that the next leaders were going to be secure and ready to continue pushing people towards Christ and and be able to respond to the many people who are coming and being saved. Scripture begins to prevail and change lives as Paul takes one step of faithful obedience after another following uh, following Christ. But here's a question for you that I have for all of us as a church. What does that look like in our lives? Because God has given us the same mandate. He has given every single Christian the same mandate, and that is the mandate to make disciples. The great uh, commission and the great commandment he's given to all of us. And so we know the objective is to make disciples and we know the mission, but the challenge we have as individuals is do we remain faithful and obedient in each step along the way? Are we being faithful on this journey towards Christ? Sometimes that journey brings trials. Sometimes that journey brings setbacks and hurts and pains and storms. Sometimes it even tests our faithfulness to God. It's overwhelming at times, but the question still remains, do I, in the face of all of that, remain faithful? And from Paul's example, we see that even through hardships, even through stonings, even through threats of life, even through depressive thoughts, Paul stays faithful to the mission. Paul was feeling accomplished at this point in his mission. He's getting ready to move on in the near future, but as the church extends, guess what's also happening? There's some problems starting to bubble in the surface. The enemy's not happening and violence was brewing. And Luke goes on to give us a blow-by-blow description in verse 23 to 28. It says, And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is just kind of like slang for those who are following Christians. We say Christian, they were saying the way. For a a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. I love how they speak. I'm going to start talking like that. Honey, I bring no little money to this house. Okay. Uh, These gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you will see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many I turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours uh, that may come into disrepute, but also that the temple, the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Maybe in a couple weeks, uh, Dean can share his story about the time he stood in this exact spot. It's a really great story, but I won't steal that. But I'm just putting that on your radar for you. But what a crazy thing happening. What we see going on in these verses is that the main idea that we see is that trusting in temporary things will lead us astray. They won't suffice. What we see happening here is the gospel is impacting culture and culture is transforming. And because of that change, it is having a real impact on the economic setup of Ephesus. Their economy is being impacted. This is real change. And this type of change is not only going to make waves in the church, but it's also going to make waves in the community. Paul's message was very bold. 
and very courageous. He was not hesitant at all to speak out about uh, against idolatry. Even Demetrius understands that. He says, he's saying that what I'm doing, making these idols, they're not real gods. And if you look back at his uh, sermons in 15 and 17 of Acts, he's very clear that there's only one living God and idols are dumb, deaf, and mute. They don't hear you. His message has been very clear and he's been elevating the gospel and pushing against idolatry. So I think we need to step back and give Demetrius a little bit of credit here. We need to look at this through an unbeliever's eyes, not just through our Christian lens. Like, yeah, get him, Paul. Let's look at how the unbeliever's seeing this. Because I can see why Demetrius is upset. I can see why he's mad. I mean, if his sole livelihood was based upon selling idols, and then Paul comes in with his people, and people start in, uh, changing and no longer finding their identity in idols, and all of a sudden he's selling fewer and fewer and fewer idols, that's attacking his livelihood. That's attacking his food that's going on his table for his family. I can see why he's upset, and I think you can understand that as well. You see, this is the powerful change that the gospel brings. When new life begins to course through our veins as dead souls and we become alive in Christ, the sap begins to move through our veins like through the tree. It starts to knock off those old leaves. The, the Ephesians, their leaves are being knocked off. They don't need idols anymore. And old habits are beginning to fall away. And this is what we're seeing. They're no longer finding their hope. They're no longer finding their identity. They're no longer finding their strength in idols. But now they are in Christ. They didn't need idols anymore. That wasn't an emotional pull. I just choked. <laughs> and if this happens to a large number of people, which this text is hinting at. This wasn't just like 10 people. These were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Then this is going to have a real economic repercussion on people like Demetrius and others. The Ephesian economy was so like pretty much dependent on the industry of idolatry and it's being threatened. And we see this uproar is directly connected to the conversions that we, we see happening because of Paul and his companions' faithful preaching and outreach. This is actually about the 10th time in the book of Acts that Luke is telling us the consequences of faithful preaching and teaching and evangelism, that trouble will ensue. Trouble will come because this is one of the principles of the kingdom of God. We as a church we should not be surprised when the devil gets angry with us because of what we're doing. Because Jesus says he is building his kingdom in view of enemy territory. We're not hiding away. We're not hidden in the mountains. We are right at the front gates of enemy territory, his local churches that are established in communities like Drumheller. He is building his kingdom in view of enemy territory. And when we advance and we take territory, of course he is going to be angry. Of course he is going to get upset. But what we have to remember is what did Jesus say about the gates of Hades? Come on. Yeah, they shall not prevail. And that understanding in the original language is like a dam that can't hold back the water. It will burst forward and the water will flow through. So when we as Christians take steps into enemy territory by talking to our neighbors about Jesus, by living the gospel out in our community, the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancement of the gospel. 
It doesn't say they won't resist it. It doesn't say it won't attack us, but it shall not win. Amen? Come on, let's get excited about that. We have victory in Christ Jesus right now, not tomorrow, but right now. And when we live like Christ as a community, as a church, the gates of hell will burst forward and we will see souls saved. We will see Christ move. Come on, amen? Amen. Amen, yeah. Okay, you can sit up front here. Um, <laughs> But I want us to pay attention to this, uh, that we need to understand a little bit of this worldview. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the world. I've never been there, but I'm sure it's just absolutely beautiful still to this day. This was the economic, it's gone? It's gone, well, the site is still, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dean will fill you in next, or two weeks. Uh, yeah, the economic hub of Ephesian life. All of Asia would gather once a year here for a huge pagan festival. They would come to Ephesus, Ephesus sorry, to, uh, to, uh, to worship this god Artemis, and they would bring great expensive gifts. And, the, and this would be a huge economic boom in that area. And you could well expect that everybody in their grandma was selling trinkets as people were coming. I'm telling you, they're just grabbing Sharpies and writing great as Artemis, and people were 15 bucks, no problem, right? They'll buy it. And uh, so there's vendors everywhere, trinkets, and everything was being sold. The economy gets a huge influx of money during this time. And what we see is when Demetrius rises up, it's either during this festival or it's just before or just after, somewhere in that time frame. But what he's noticing is that our sales have been down more than ever. We are losing money because people are starting to worship the God that Paul preaches. And it's as if Demetrius is saying, you know what? If Paul would have just stayed in the lecture hall of Tyrannus that we talked about last week, if he would have just spoke to the Christians and trained them in there, but never brought it out of the building, everything would have been okay. Does that sound a little familiar? Oh, if you Christians just keep it in your church, just keep it to yourself. Don't bring it out here. Don't bother me with that because the gospel brings real change. So people are up in arms. It'd be like if I was going downtown Calgary during Stampede Week and I started saying, the rodeo is evil, right? And all these things. And I start preaching against Stampede Week. You can better believe it. You got to look for a new pastor the next week. I'd be dead, right? Like, <laughs> I would bring about a lot of hate if I started preaching against uh, the, the, the Stampede. So picture it that way. This is the Calgary Stampede in a sense. This is their annual festival. And now Paul is here preaching about against pagan idolatry and Demetrius is angry. But what I want our attention to be uh, uh, focused on is in verse 27, because I think verse 27 helps us to see three areas, dangerous areas that are temporary that we put our trust into. Reminder of verse 27, he says, Demetrius says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple, the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. So the first thing we see as humans that we like to put our trust in that are temporary is our resources. As we see in the verses today, the gospel is impacting the economy, the resources of Ephesus. When the gospel comes in the world, it will impact not just your personal finances, but also the economy of the world. Let's say, let's say for example, the adult entertainment industry. 
I know there's kids in this room, so I'll just leave it at that. But you know what I'm talking about. The adult industry, uh, entertainment industry, it's a million billion dollar industry. It's huge. It brings in so much money over the years. But we as Christians should not be paying for that, being involved in that, watching that. And if we are going out and we are seeing change in our community, like on the level of Ephesus, that means less and less people are going to be buying adult entertainment items, which will show a huge impact on their revenue. And rightly so, amen? Yeah. It's an evil, evil, wicked thing that is so um, accessible to men and women alike. But that is one modern day example of it. And I'm currently studying revivals, getting ready for uh, our fall series. But what's amazing about revivals that I'm reading about right now is that secular accounts, not Christian accounts, are recording that crime drops like crazy during revival. Because nobody's stealing anymore. Nobody's taking advantage of any, anybody anymore because they're all getting saved at the revival. I, I lived in Rochester for a couple of years and I was studying the Rochester revivals and Rochester was the murder capital of New York and they said there was nobody murdering anybody anymore. The cops didn't know what to do. Come on, like, that's wild. Like God is changing culture. I know this sounds like a fairy tale maybe in our lives, but this is the real deal. This is lives being changed 180 degrees, no longer the same when he impacts culture. So the gospel may impact our, our, our personal economy and our local economy, but we better believe it. We, we might not always see the, lo or the, the government's economy stuff, but we will see the impact in our personal finances. And what do I mean by that? Well, our money will become our servant rather than our master. The gospel will cause us to be generous as we see in scriptures and trust God for provision and not our own. To live before coming to Christ was to gain as much wealth and status as possible. But after we've come to Christ, money no longer is our savior, nor is it our identity because it's temporary. It doesn't matter how much we have, it can all change in a blink of an eye. This isn't a, a, a wealth statement. This isn't uh, talking about it's bad to earn money or if you're here and you have money, that's not wrong. This isn't a statement of wealth. This is a statement of trust, of trust. It's a matter of what motivates your heart, what drives you, because wealth is temporary. But guess what? Christ is eternal. Christ is forever. And as we saw this last year, last week, people took all their idols and burned it. And it said it was about 50,000 or something in that number. You can just look a couple verses ahead of materials. And that is actually equivalent to over millions of dollars today of being burned goods. Now they could have easily, like a lot of us do, they get saved and like, well, I'm gonna profit from this still. I'm not gonna worship it, but I'm going to sell it and make some money. No, they, were more, they weren't concerned about their livelihood at this point. They were concerned that they were sinners and that they've sinned against the holy God, and that only thing that matters is to make sure that I remove this from my life and trust that God will pick up the loose ends. Trust that God will provide. They were concerned about their sin and not their wealth. The second thing verse 27 shows us is that we often put our trust in religion. Demetrius points out not only that this trade of ours might go away, but also the great temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. He's saying this is our place of worship. People from all over come here and value this. What if they don't come? They're not going to value us anymore. And I would argue 
that Demetrius is probably more concerned with his finances than he was with his religion, but he's throwing it out there. And it's a reminder for us that at the end of the day, religion, that is it separated from God, is, uh, is a self-seeking, it's, it makes you a slave. It doesn't, but the gospel doesn't allow us to settle for this mere status quo of religion. Here's the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion works to make you better, but the gospel makes you new. Religion will work to make you better and in doing so will make you a slave to your performance. But on the contrary, the gospel makes you new, not by your works, by the work of Christ. You are saved by Christ's works. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. You are given faith, Ephesians 2, by God as a gift. It's nothing you're doing. It is God is the active mover in your salvation. I'm not saying you don't have responsibility in there, but God is the initiator of your salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... So if you are here and you are in Christ right now, you are a new creation today. Not tomorrow, not next year, not in 50 years after you've served enough at the church. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus right now. The old you, the old leaves have fallen away and the new has come right now. This is the word in the Greek is not an idea of you smash your car and fix it up and now you have a new car. No, this is a brand new car altogether. You are brand new in Christ Jesus right now. Do you believe that? Yeah, 2022 Tesla. This is oil gas country. I don't know if we should say that. But is that you? Is that you? Or are you still walking through the old motions of religion? Are you still boiling Christianity down to a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic understanding at the end of the day? That all Christianity is about is to make you better, to make your kids more polite, to make sure that you have some therapy when you're going through some trouble. If that's all you're boiling Christianity down, then you're sadly mistaken. You're missing out on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who wants to have a living relationship with you. Don't be enslaved to your own performance. Your heart needs to be transformed by the gospel every day. Not just when you are saved, but every day. This is not your doing, but Christ. And it comes from, uh, and from that it, co- it produces the fruit of the spirit in you. Is there fruit in you? Not that it's perfectly living out, because that would just put you in a slave to things again, but that it's coming from you. You're not a constipated Christian. You're not trying to force it out. It's just growing out of you. The third danger that we put our hope in is our reputation. He ends verse 27 with this statement. All of Asia knows this is what if Ephesus is known for. It's like he's saying, guys, our reputation is online here. If people stop coming to worship, what else is Ephesus going to be known for? This was kind of like their definition of patriotism. This is where their pride was at. It was great in this area. And certainly, don't get me wrong, our reputation should matter as Christians. I'm not saying go out to be jerks to everyone. We must make sure that we have a good reputation in our community. But all of this is not our main focus, as it's all temporary. And if we live with the eternal in mind in our focus, our finances, our resources, our religion, and our reputation will all find their rightful place and none will take precedent. None will begin to master you and your decisions. And that's because we don't need to put our trust in those things. We shouldn't be motivated to see our name known. One preacher said as he was talking to a group of pastors, he says, preach the gospel, Live and die and be forgotten because we shouldn't be after our names and light. 
We need to be more committed with his reputation than our own. When following Jesus, we become more focused on protecting his name than protecting our name, even though God doesn't need our help, because we have to remember that it's not about you. It's about Jesus and his name and not your name. So whether we're talking about resources, about religion or a reputation, these are three categories that humans commonly put our trust in and they're temporary, they're fleeting, they're meaningless. And our rest must, our trust must rest upon the eternal and not the temporary. Our focus must rely on things that are transcend space and time. Our focus must rest on the power of the gospel. Our focus must rest on the mission that God has called us all to, to do, and not on the temporary things. Temporary things is what causes division and bickering and complaining. We get so easily in it. We want control of everything. So every decision that's made, it's met with, well, I could have did this better. Why are you focusing on that? Focus on the mission. Keep your eyes on Christ and not on the temporary. Please don't hear me wrong. This doesn't imply that the temporary doesn't matter. It does because our lives matter and they're temporary. So the temporary does matter, but this is a question of what motivates us, what drives us, what makes us tick, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah, coffee. (laughs) Paul was clearly committed to preaching the word. He was not surprised at all when he saw the enemy rise up and try to hinder him as he was preaching and building relationships for almost three years in Ephesus. And we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be shocked when people rise up against us. But one thing we can expect, one thing that is promised that we can look forward to in the face of enemy attack is we can expect peace and courage. Let's finish or get close to finishing off. Picking up in verse 29 which says, so the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into, uh, sorry, they, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the, uh, 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 into the theater, wow, dragging with the Gaius and uh, uh, Aristarchus, I can never say that, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wa- uh, wished to go into the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asherites who were friends of his said to him and were urging him not to venture into the shelter. So Before we jump into the main idea of this text, what we see right off the bat is mob mentality. It's just chaos. And we today also in our culture have mob mentality. It's very visible. It's obvious, especially through the internet and social media. The mob's voice can gain so much traction so quickly. I'm just gonna throw out some free advice to you. Take it or leave it. But beware of joining a fight without knowing the cause. Beware of engaging in a social media chat without knowing what's being said and reading the chat thread before it. Beware of joining in causes and joining mobs uh, that you might end up somewhere that you never intended to do because of mob mentality. You weren't thinking properly. Just because the mob is loud and there are many loud movements and mobs today doesn't mean the mob is right. And the church should not be dictated by the whims of culture and mobs that rise up. So just be guarded. Be wise. This is what scripture commands us to be, to be wise and be on guard. And that's just some free advice for you. You can take it or leave it, but getting back to the main focus, 
Remember Paul back in Lystra a few weeks ago, he was stoned and revived and he got back up and he walked back into the city. And then just a few weeks ago in Philippi, he was so miserable that he began singing songs of praise. And now here in Ephesus, we see Paul as an immovable rock in a stormy sea. He's at peace in the midst of the storm and hateful turmoil. Paul stood in the tradition of men like Daniel, who was scratching the lion's belly until daybreak. Men like David, who stood in front of Goliath and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who should defy the armies of the living God? He was bold because all these men, they were at peace with God, that God was in control and not man, that God demanded their destiny and not them. Because they, and because of that, they had a supernatural courage, a supernatural peace, a supernatural boldness. And this isn't special to them. We also can have that. We can have the same peace and same courage as we face the mobs of this world. In the midst of storms and hardships in life, we must choose to trust God because trusting God brings peace. Focusing on the storm of our trial brings fear and discouragement and and discontentment, but the Lord brings peace that surpasses all understandings as we see with Paul and his companions. Trusting God doesn't always guarantee a happy ending, but our peace and courage and our confidence and our joy are not dependent on our circumstance. It doesn't matter what happens. We can rest in God because God is unchanging. God is immovable. And our peace, our courage, our confidence is on him that doesn't change. Isaiah 26.3 promises, you keep him in perfect peace who mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's how you have perfect peace. The Hebrew word there for perfect peace is shalom, shalom. You will keep him in shalom, shalom, double peace. Double peace. When the Holy Spirit causes us to repent of our sins, changing our lives so that we're out of sync with the culture of the world and their agenda, and maybe even go undergo persecution because of our faithfulness to Christ, he also supplies double peace. Perfect peace. Shalom, shalom. Some of God's people, though they may hear much great preaching, though they may engage with their word on the daily, they're often worriers. And this might not get a lot of attention from churches all the time, but worry is sin. Worry is sin. And we need to repent of it, and we need to trust God and expect his double peace, his perfect peace. And lastly, as we close, we see that God assures us of his providential care, picking up in verse 35, which says, And then the town clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, likely like a meteor or something? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. What he's saying there is go sue them. Go to the courts. And there there are pro-councils there. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Rome hated riots, just for some context. So they don't want that. They're really in danger of being charged with rioting today. So therefore, uh, there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
What are, that's an amazing God. Our amazing God is in control all the time. He has been in control the whole time. Even if Paul and his companions were dragged in there and ripped from limb to limb and perished, he was in control. He was moving local officials like checkers on a board. He was waiting for the perfect psychological moment when the crowd quieted itself down and a pagan city official who was a stickler for law and order, he brought the mob to its senses. God controls the hearts of kings, amen? He holds our prime minister's hands, a heart in his hands. He holds every king, every ruler, every governor in his hands and he can use them as checkers on a board like we saw here. When we are brimming with the Holy Spirit so the old leaves are falling off, we experience a special and personal assurance that God is in control like we see here today. So with that, I want to end with some reflection questions based on what we have observed today. How is your spiritual life? Is your spiritual life a perpetual winter? Have you become desensitized to sin in your own life? Or are you actively removing it and repenting like the Christians in Ephesus? Are we as a church and individuals indistinguishable from our decaying culture? Not that we hide from them, but that we don't become like them. Has there been any transformation in your life since you have put your trust in Jesus? Or are people commonly surprised and say things about you like, Aaron's a Christian? I would have never known. Think about those. Or is your spiritual life springtime? Is it springtime in your soul? Is the sap running? Are the buds pushing out the old from within and traveling to every limb and expelling the deadness of the past? Is your life making a difference for the gospel? Are you sometimes at odds with the flow of the world in their agenda? Not because you're being difficult or self-righteous, but because you are so full of Christ that your lifestyle has changed you dramatically and changed the way that you have spent your time and your money, both in work and in leisure. If you long for the expulsive power of the new life, you should do the following things in God's strength, not in your strength. First one is, Yield to the Holy Spirit's prompting. Surrender to him daily. Nothing can go wrong when you do that. Confess specific sins. Agree with him about those sins that he's convicting you of. Don't just start making excuses. Well, I only did that because sister so-and-so said this to me. No, you're responsible for yourself and nobody else. Agree with God. Name it. Make it personal. Yeah, I'm struggling with materialism. Yeah, I'm struggling with sensuality. Yeah, I'm struggling with idolatry, pride, lying, bitterness, worrying, gossiping, going behind people's back and stabbing them, always undermining what God is doing in the church. Name it. Thirdly, ask God to give you the strength to turn back to him. Tell him that you can only truly repent by his enabling grace and then do whatever he tells you to do in his precious word. Be obedient to his word. And lastly, in my opinion, most importantly, just rest in him. Find your satisfaction in him. For when you keep your eyes on Christ, nothing else can steal your attention. Only if you start looking off of him, it will. Amen? Let's pray as the worship team comes. 
Father, we thank you for today, Lord. Even as we had some crazy things happen in this morning that have changed our agendas and our uh, uh, idea of how this service will go, Lord, we confess that you've been in control this whole time, that we know that even despite our want to control, Lord, that you have your plan and you direct our, our footsteps, Lord, and we thank you for that. Father, I thank you for all those who are here today who are uh, gathering with us to worship. Father, would you bless them? Would your word not fall on deaf ears, but Lord, would your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts and change us, Lord, where we need to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.